An article in the Wall Street Journal asks, why work out when you can just buy the clothes and look like you just did? The article explores a growing trend in the athletic apparel market. People are buying sports clothing without actually practicing the sport. The article notes that, quote, the U.S. athletic apparel market will increase by nearly 50% to more than $100 billion at retail by 2020, driven in large part by consumers snapping up stretchy tees and leggings that will never see the fluorescent lights of a gym. For instance, the sales of yoga apparel increased by 45%, but yoga participation grew by less than 5%. The trend isn't limited to yoga. Outdoor and camping retailers have debuted new lines of hiking boots and flannel shirts for people who probably have no intention of actually hiking and camping. Uh, retailers are also rolling out jogging pants and preppy $90 men's running shoes for men, uh, running shorts uh, for men who may never jog. Article quoted one buyer of athletic apparel who likes to wear athletic pants around town but seldom has time to work out. She said, when you put on your workout apparel, you think, huh, maybe I should think about working out today. This is true. This isn't satire. This is true. Um, sometimes Christians can live with the same attitude, actually. That I can attach myself to Christ and His church, but I don't have to be what God expects me to be. I don't have to be the church. I can put on outward trappings. I can come to, to formal things, but my inward attitudes can stay the same. And the scripture today that Tim read today shakes its head vigorously, no, and says, no, to be in Messiah Jesus means that you must put on Christ and wear Him in your attitudes to others in the church. This morning I want us to see three things. Be the church, remember the point, and check your heart. Be the church, remember the point, and check your heart. The scripture picks up in verse 17. We're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting us here this morning, we uh, tend to go uh, line upon line, chapter and chapter, uh, book by book, and scriptures here. And we're in 1 Corinthians 11, where our journey has brought us, and verses 17 through 34. As Tim read, and Paul is saying, uh, I've given, in the instructions that are going to follow, I can't give you any thumbs up. I can't praise you. He says, it sounds like more harm than good is done when you meet together. Now in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances or the things that I've passed down to you. And he has is, he is, he is given them encouragement. And now he says, the things that I fo- are going to follow here, I can't give the same encouragement for. You're, you're failing in this area here. And what has happened when we looked in verses 2 through 16 last week is that they had blurred the lines of distinction that God intended needed to be made. But now in verses 17 through 34, the opposite is happening. They are making lines of distinction that should not be made. And so that's the flow of thought that Paul is addressing here for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the health of the church and the community, and their witness to the lost. That's where that's what Paul is trying to bring to mind here. Now there's a phrase, come together, assemble, gather together, that's repeated five times. It's all the same word in the original language in verses 17 through 22. comes up in verses 33 through 34. It's the key word that holds the argument together. So it's the idea of when you come together as a church, when you assemble, and Paul gives specific instructions. 
to counter what is happening that is wrong, the poison, the germs, the, the disease that has sneaked in versus how they should be. So he says in verse 17, when you get together, you should be better from this. You should, you're, you, you should, you should be able to leave a, 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 a person who is more closely calibrated to Jesus Christ. But he says, what's actually happening is when you get together, you're doing more harm than good. So shut the doors, he says, until you get this right identity lived out and understood. And friends, just right off the bat here with application, when we come together as believers, are we better? Will we leave better? Are we simply repeating the same old things? The Bible says, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He that knows knows to do good, let him do it, right? If you know to, good, to, to do good and you do it not, it is sin. Are we better in Jesus Christ when we gather together? And that was the problem here in Corinth. They were not. They were doing more harm than good. And the problem was not their failure to gather together. They apparently were very faithful to gather together. But their failure, and listen to this, their failure was to truly be God's new people when they gathered. Here there was to be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Chapter 12, verse 13. But as you'll see, the problem was they drew lines that should not have been drawn. So, verse 18, he says, there's divisions among you. There's divisions among you. Uh, uh, and, And he says, I believe it. When you come together as a church. Now, you might, if you've been in this study since chapter 1, you might remember that idea of divisions that's come up in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. But this isn't the same division. The former divisions in chapter 1 were quarrels and jealousy here. Um, uh, There are are, uh, um, uh, leaders that people were, were huddling under and they were pitting the others who... Um, were they're not their pastors against their pastors, and, and there was there's a problem there in the in the Corinthian church. They become factions here of people who um, disparaged other groups because they didn't have the same leaders in their house churches. And that's not what's going on here. And this situation, First Corinthians eleven, and it's not because of leaders they are, that they are being loyal to above Christ. What it is is there are. Uh, factions, divisions between the haves and the have-nots in this passage. The rich and the poor. Paul says, when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you in your gatherings. Not simply false allegiances, like it was in chapter 1. And Paul is saying, if you've been blurring the lines between male and female, which should have been clearly marked in verses 2-16, through 16, now you are marking out a line that should be obliterated. And then he says this in verse 19. He says, For there must be also heresies. The word there is not the idea of what you think of as heresies. The word is actually uh, factions. For there must also be factions among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. By their evil things, these divisions... Paul is saying, God is actually working out His purposes. He's saying, these reveal those who are His. What does he mean by this? He's saying, the strifes that come up, the conflicts that come up, and the way you deal with it, 
actually shows who are faithful to Jesus. Shows who are faithful to Jesus. Now, in their society, they may have just seen what was going on here as the rich acting like the rich and the poor acting like poor and the problems that created. But Paul takes the actions that are going on and says this isn't just a society thing. He sets it against the grand background of God's redemption here. And he says these divisions will ultimately have the, have the effect of revealing those who are genuinely Christ's behavior that reflects the gospel in verse 18, 19. He says that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. That word approved means those who have passed the examination. Here, come through this test. In other words, these strifes, these divisions are a test among the church to see who is going to be faithful to the Lord, is what Paul's saying in verse 19. So friends, when conflicts and strifes come up in the church, take heed to these words. Take heed to these words. God is going to reveal the faithfulness of your heart to His words. And how you deal with strife. And what you're fighting over. And what really matters. And how you resolve conflict. Now the issue was in verse 20, He says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. The problem is, when you come together to eat in one place, you say you're taking the Lord's Supper, but in actuality, it is not the Lord's Supper. Because it is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The very thing, the Lord's Supper, that was supposed to, that was supposed to uh, 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 create and sustain their oneness at a church had become a drinking party where some were being stuffed and drunk and others were coming hungry and humiliated. And they were not living out their identity. And the whole point of being together in the church is being together in the Gospel, which brings people together in Christ. The Lord's Supper expresses that. So he's saying it's not really the Lord's Supper, even though you think it is. You're getting together, yeah, but it's not really the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. You're going through the motions. And your problem is not your failure to gather, but your problem is your failure to be God's new people when you gather. There's no change. There's no change. And so he's telling him, be the church. Be the church. I came across this cartoon this week and it kind of was reflective here what Paul's saying here. They don't even realize the cliques that are going on. You can't read it. Visitors to Pine Point Church could sense the cliquishness among the congregation, subtle though it was. And the point is, that's what was going on. There were cliques. There were people who would not associate with others. The wealthy and the poor. And so Paul says, no, you must be the church. You must be the church. Um, there's a man named Andres Thomas. He's given, officials gave him that name. He was put in a Russian psychiatric hospital. He'd been drafted into the Russian army. But the authorities had mistaken his native Hungarian language for the gibberish of a lunatic. And so they had him committed to this psychiatric hospital. And then they forgot about him. He lived in that psychiatric hospital for 53 years. And a few years ago, a psychiatrist at the hospital began to realize what had happened. And they helped Thomas recover the memories of who he was and where he came, came from. And he recently returned to, to Budapest as a war hero, and some called him the last prisoner of World War II. 
But not only had this man forgotten his own real name, he hadn't even seen his own face in 50 years. And so one news account describes when he was able to, they showed him a mirror, he says, For hours the old man studied the face in the mirror, the deep set eyes, the gray stubble on the chin, the furrows of the brow. It is his face, but it is a startling revelation. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here to the Corinthians. He's saying, look at what you're supposed to be and look at who you are right now. James 1, 22 through 25 says, if, it, when, when we look into the Word of God, when we hear God's instructions of who we are to be in Christ, and we, and we do not obey it, we're looking in the mirror of God's Word, and right before the mirror of God's Word, it shows us who we really are accurately. And Paul here is saying, you are not who you're supposed to be. Be who you're supposed to be. And then in verses 21 through 22, he says, some of you are in a rush to get your own meal and stuff yourselves without sharing with others. So the result is some of you are going hungry and others are going drunk, getting drunk. Don't you see the problem there? He says in verse 22, don't you have your own, if you want to, you want to have a feast where you're going to gorge yourself, do that in your own house, he says. <coughs> Well, how dare you do this together with God's church and what you're doing is you are shaming the have-nots. You are shaming the poor. Paul says, what am I supposed to do? You want me to praise you? I'm not going to praise you for this. You might be wondering, well, I thought this was the Lord's Supper. It sounds like there's a lot going on here. Well, let me take you back to Luke chapter 22, please. Luke chapter 22 and verse 19. Jesus at the Passover, the Hebrew festival of Passover, it celebrated their exodus of redemption from Israel, from Egypt, says Luke twenty two nineteen, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Jesus told them at that point to have a meal in honor of him. And then Luke continues this in Acts chapter two and verse forty two. When God birthed the church, the New Testament church, in Acts chapter 2, people repented of their sin, became saved, and were baptized. And verse 41 says, were added to the church, added to them. Verse 42, Acts 2.42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, or teaching, and fellowship, and and breaking of bread, and in prayers. So they, they ate together, they ate meals together in verse 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat or food with gladness and singleness of heart. Became a, became a rhythm in that early church to, to eat together. To eat together. And I'm assuming because of what Jesus had said about remembering him in their meal, remembering them in the, in the, in the, um, in the Lord's Supper, in the meal, Luke 22, that this would be integrated in part of their meals together, I would assume. In fact, when we go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we see that this certainly became a, a rhythm even later on in the early church in Acts 20 and verse 7, where Paul says in Troas, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul preached to them, ready to depart in the morrow and continue his speech until midnight. So their gathering was, was to have a meal together and then some Bible teaching. And probably out of that also the Lord's Supper would be incorporated in that. And that meal. So it would be a meal. And the language for these kind of feasts became known as agape feasts or love feasts. If you go to Jude chapter 12. Jude is right before the last book in the Bible, Revelation. Jude, I should say, verse 12. There's only one chapter. Paul says one of the things, or Jude says one of the things that was going on in the early church was they were allowing false teaching into the church. And Paul, or Jude says this in Jude verse 12, these are spots in your feasts of charity, your feasts of agape, your feasts of love, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. He said, you're having fellowship with false teachers that shouldn't be going on at your love feasts, your agape feasts. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 11, probably this is going on. They're having a feast together. It was certainly an acceptable thing. It was part of the rhythm of life there as a church to break bread together. They would have Bible teaching. You can read in 1 Corinthians 14 of what their uh, assembly would have looked like in Corinth. And then they would also have the Lord's Supper incorporated into that. When Israel celebrated the Passover, it wasn't certainly just the cup, and it wasn't certainly just the, the broken bread. It was a meal. And these elements out of that represented their um, certain things that were reminiscent of their life in Egypt. But in the first couple hundred years of the church, this was part of the gathering of the church. And, and, um, and they would have a meal and Bible teaching, Lord's Supper, and some mix of that particular order. And many times, the leftover food and extra food, then they would take and distribute among the poor. Particularly uh, the, 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 uh, the deacons in the early church, as you read some of the records in the first couple hundred years. So if you're wondering, well, how in the world were they gorging and getting drunk from a small cracker and a thimble full of, of Welch's grape juice? That's how. That's how it was going on here. right? And some, apparently the rich, were bringing elaborate food, which is nothing wrong with that. But they were eating these sumptuous meals before others, probably the slaves and the poor freedmen who were working, coming to work, while the rich um, may not have had to work the same hours. They were eating all this before the poor would come, and the rich were devouring these meals and the presence of the have-nots, the poor, in terms of not sharing their meals with them. That's probably the situation here. So, some are hungry and have nothing. And some are eating and drinking so much they're gorged and drunk. And we, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 26, as we did a few weeks ago, we were reminded that Paul says there was a, a present distress that was going on. There may have been a food shortage, a crisis in the city of Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 7 verse 26. So imagine going on a picnic with a large group of friends. And you get to the picnic, and you're a few minutes late, and you see some people with their elaborate picnic campers. Nothing wrong with that, right? Expensive cutlery and glass. Nothing wrong with that. Delicious and lavish food and drinks. Nothing wrong with that. And there's other people sitting alongside, and they have some small peanut butter crackers and a bottle of water. And they're supposed to be their friends. Would that seem right? Well, how much more in Jesus' church, right? 
when you're meeting for worship, the people you're with are not just your friends. The Bible says they are your brothers and sisters. They join the Messiah just as you are. They're members of your family because all those who belong to the Messiah form a single family. Paul will say later on a single body. And he says one goes hungry and another goes drunk. Is that an expression of what Jesus' church should be? And Paul says no. Be the church. Be who you are. And then, Paul will say in the next section of verses, remember the point. Remember the point. Remember the purpose of the whole, of the, of the whole Lord's Supper. There was a 2012 uh, Pew survey that tracked the rise of a new religious group who actually called themselves non-religious. They called themselves the nuns, or the N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> or the religiously unaffiliated. One-fifth of Americans... <clears throat> A full third of adults under 30 say they belong to no religion at all. One of the researchers at uh, Harvard's pointed out that this group is still looking, however, for elements of religious experience. And he says uh, that the way they are seeking out meaning, commuting, and ritual is still the same. They're just doing it without so-called organized religion, which I always scratch my head and said, you don't like organized religion, you're really going to hate unorganized religion. Um, but they start the, the, the study started profiling um, these people who call, describe themselves this way and they found that they are finding community in a lot of the things they were looking for in religion in fitness classes CrossFit Soul Cycle are offering their students more than just a chance to lose weight or be in shape or tone up. The Pew study said they function like religions. He says this. Well, the researchers said this. People come because they want to lose weight or gain muscle strength, but they stay for the community. It's really the relationships that keep them coming back. We heard people say, well, CrossFit is my church, or Soul Cycle is like my cult. In a good way. And they noticed this. They said, once that religious perspective had been opened in our eyes, so many things came out. Whether it's the flag on display in every CrossFit gym, or the way the space is set up, or how you could follow a kind of a liturgy in a soul cycle class through the use of light and sound. It's an emotional and spiritual experience as well as a physical one. So really what's going on is you have people who are searching for fulfillment. Searching for this spiritual connection and they're finding it in the world, and obviously falsely, by the way, there's nothing wrong with CrossFit or, or you know, bicycling, etc. here. But the, the, the church is to show them that what they're searching for comes through a deep relationship with the living God, Messiah, and His people. If you want meaning, if you want purpose, come to Jesus. And perhaps they have seen such a lack of this in the churches that that's where they're trying to find it, because they're not finding it in the churches. Perhaps. Suggestion. Perhaps people are finding community outside of Jesus' church because they aren't finding community within His church. And Corinth here was going through the motions. They are going doing church for selfish reasons. Not to serve others, but they come to be served by others. They were proud, they were arrogant, they were assuming, they were ignorant of what they were doing to others because of how they were treating others. Because they were treating themselves first. Treat yourself. And I wonder... Are there shades of where we may do that? 
And friends, coming to Jesus means a real community with humility toward others in the body. And this happens by putting yourselves in the shoes of others. A tenderness, a compassion, where we have a freedom of self-forgetfulness and we can think about others. Have you ever visited another church on vacation? Uh, when I was at my brother's wedding this this uh, summer in Colorado, on Sunday we went to a church in, in Boulder, Colorado. <coughs> and um, it was good to be on the other side of things. Um, you know what it means to be welcomed genuinely versus glanced at and nodded at or superficially have your hand shook? That might be the way our flesh may be programmed to run, but it's not the way Jesus has redeemed us to operate. And Jesus tells them in this passage that they are not a welcoming church. They're doing stuff, and they're doing it the wrong reasons. And they're doing it the wrong way. Friends, he says, remember the point. Remember the point. Because we have a common purpose and mission in Jesus bringing us to new life through His work on the cross and the resurrection. You say, what do you mean, remember the point? Well, look what he says in verse 23 after he says, I can't praise you for this. He says, now let's remember the point of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you. These are instructions that are passed on through apostolic teaching. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim, you do preach, you do show the Lord's death till he come. What he's talking about is this. In Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, uh, Jesus is celebrating the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, with his disciples the night before he's betrayed which remembered the exodus from Egypt in Exodus 12, and the sprinkling of the blood of lambs on the doors there. And also looked back to the original covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, where he says, In your seed I will bless all the nations of the earth. And Jesus then connects that feast, that Passover, with the significance, a new significance, of a new covenant. Not the old covenant of Moses. The new covenant in his blood, a covenant that Jeremiah 31 33 prophesied, a covenant that Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8 says is the whole basis for life in Jesus in the church. And what would happen was the Passover would begin with thanks. And he recounts that in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24, and when he had given thanks, it would say, they would say something like this, the Passover table. Blessed are you, O Lord, God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. Then they would take during that meal, besides the other food that was available, unleavened bread called the bread of affliction from Deuteronomy 16.3. And they would make a statement about it, remembering what God had brought them from in Egypt, their exodus from Egypt, and the hard days of affliction as slaves to Egypt. And they would say something to the effect of, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. 
And Jesus takes these words in Luke chapter 22 and He transforms them. He opens them up. He fulfills them. And He applies them to Himself as the one who was afflicted and shifts the exodus of Egypt to His exodus outside of Jerusalem to the cross. And then would come in the meal the cup of blessing. And they would say, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you. Referring back to Moses' words in Exodus 24, verse 8. And Jesus takes that and says, yes, and it points to me as a new covenant that began in my blood on the cross. Not the blood of lambs. And so what we need to understand is the Lord's Supper is not, not just a memorial of the Last Supper. Uh, it, is, it is a reminder of the sufficiency of Jesus' death for us to bring us together in Christ and give us new life. And Paul is is saying that salvation through Christ's death, which is what this Lord's Supper represents here, has created a new community of people marked out for Him. A community of people who bear His name, who are people of the Spirit. He says we have a common mission. Remember the point. And now do you see the contrast with what they were doing? Here they were to be proclaiming what Jesus did for them and makes them new. And they're living in the old ways. Amy Chua wrote a book that tells the story of Carl Marlantes, a Marine lieutenant who served in Vietnam. And he observed how the military uh, created unity among very diverse soldiers. Going through conflict. And there in Vietnam, he remembers being in a remote jungle hilltop in 1968. And he was asked by Ray Delgado, who was an 18-year-old Hispanic kid from Texas, if he wanted to try a tamale from a care package that Ray's mother had sent him. And if any of you had tamales, you know they're in a corn husk, right? Uh, Marlantes tried the tamale, but explained it was very tough to eat. And Ray said, Lieutenant, you've got to take the corn husk off. And it, that, that little story there connected in Marlanti's mind of how focusing on a common mission brought very different cultures uh, together, different people together. And he said he was from a small town on the Oregon coast. He said, I heard of tamales, but I'd never seen one. Until I joined my company of Marines in Vietnam, I'd never even talked to a Mexican. I saw how the military brought together young men from diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds and forced them to trust one another with their lives. If I was pinned down by enemy fire and I needed an M79 man, I'd scream for Thompson because he was the best. I didn't think about what color Thompson was. White guys had to listen to soul music and black guys had to listen to country music. We didn't fear one another. And the experience stuck with us. Hundreds of thousands of young men came home from Vietnam with different ideas about race, some for the worse, but most for the better. Racism was installed in Vietnam, but I believe it was where our country finally learned that it just might be possible for all of us to get along. Whether you agree or not with his conclusions, is not the point. His point is focusing on a common mission brought them together. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Focus on the point, on the mission. Remember the point in the Lord's Supper. Remember what Jesus formed. How He brought you out of the slave market of sin and out of the pit that you were sinking and then drowning in set your feet on the rock and redeem you to be free, to be slaves to a good master of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul says, so check your heart. Check your heart. So we need a common mission. Uh, we, need, we need to have a, 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 a welcoming church that, that comes through, through being the church, that remembers the point. But thirdly, 
Check your heart means we repent of where we have failed in these things. Look what Paul says in verse 27 to 34. On the basis of this, on the basis of remembering the point, of remembering your true identity, who you really are, not who you're acting like, but who you really are in Christ, Paul says this in verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily or unworthy shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily or unworthy eats and drinks damnation or cursing to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Here's exhibit A, verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, many sleep or die. For if we would judge, discern our hearts, judge ourselves, repent, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for, tarry one for another. If you may hunger, let him eat at home, that you come together not to condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. What is he saying? His concern is not ultimately the bread and cup, is it? His concern is with their hearts. His concern with how these participants are remembering Christ, he says, you're not. You're getting together, you're doing this whole ceremony that is to remember Christ and to proclaim the gospel, and you're not doing it. So he says, you should examine yourself before eating the bread, drinking this cup, before they participate in the meal. Here is the context of what it means to examine ourselves, because I always understood it uh, as a kid growing up. Well, I need to make sure I'm sitting down before the Lord's Supper and confessing all known sins. And there's an aspect where that's true, but the context is our relationships in terms of attitude toward others in your church. How we're treating others. Because the meal itself is a place of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is my body broken for you, Jesus. This is the blood that I was shed in your, shed for you. And friends, when we come into the gathering of Jesus, we are coming for healing, for rest, for proclamation, for surgery, for empowerment, for Jesus' mission. And Paul's readers are to remember this isn't just another Greek drinking party. You want, you want those? There's, there's plenty of those out there. This isn't just a social occasion to pass the time with friends. When we come together, this is not an audience watching a performance. We are all participants in worship. We have come together as a body of Christ to remember the very saving, life-creating events that created us as a body and enable us to proclaim salvation to the world. Each of us is intimately connected with each of us. We have struggles, we have joys, we have fears, we have failures. And we all come as sinners in need of grace. God's filling. God's correction, God's rebuke, and God's wholeness. And in that shared awareness of the need for each one of us for God's grace, God brings healing. And that was not what was going on in Corinth. Go north of here, the St. Lawrence River. There's a little guy who's been hanging out up there the past three years. He's a narwhal, which is a whale with the horn on. 
end of his mouth here. Um, he's 600 miles south of his usual range. And even though he's all alone, he's not alone because apparently he's been adopted by a band of belugas, beluga whales. They filmed him in July playing among a pod of young belugas. <clears throat> and they say he behaves just like one of the boys. That doesn't normally happen, but for some reason this particular pod have adopted this guy, this narwhal. He's been fully accepted as part of the group. They don't know how he got it. Got into St. Lawrence, 600 miles south. Um, uh, but he said he found some normal buddies. I don't even know if he knows he's a narwhal. They tend to stick their own kind. But for some reason, this particular pot of belugas have been open to welcome him, even though he doesn't look, or act, look, look the same or act the same. And friends, that's the picture of Jesus' church. When a person humbles himself, becomes a believer, you're not any better than they are. We must be eager to welcome. Um, that word that Paul uses in verse 33 for his conclusion, Wherefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. That word tarry, which you think of the idea of wait, is the idea of accept and welcome. You see, what was going on in Corinth was what happened in James's day, in James chapter 2 and verse 1. James says, My brothers, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come to your assembly a man with a gold ring, and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, dirty clothes, and you respect to him that wears the gay or, spe- or uh, special, uh, te- special clothing, and say to him, Sit you here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand you there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor, dishonored. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before their judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Please understand what he's not saying is that having money is bad and not having money is, 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 is good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying how we treat people based on their social status in the church needs to be premised by the gospel of Jesus Christ that at the cross all things are equal. Think what would happen if someone of a celebrity walked into our church, right? Probably a lot of people would want to talk to them afterward. Now think of a poor, perhaps, single mom who comes in. We have that same energy, that same zeal to minister to people. Do you find that Jesus usually associates with those who are outcasts of society? And that's not what the Corinthian church were doing, was doing. They're exalting themselves and shaming those who run on the same social status. You say, well, Bickle, when I come to a, to, to, when I share food, everybody's gonna, you know, everybody can have it no matter what their social, yes, I know that. But friends, how diligent are you in welcoming all people? 
Because I don't think this is an issue if God's intended this in His church for all ages that only happened in 1 Corinthians 11. <clears throat> Who are the people in our body that you would not have over for dinner? Same deal, right? Same deal. Jeffrey Hall is a communications professor at the University of Kansas. Published research about relationships. Looking at casual relationships and close friendships. And he found that it took about 40 to 60 hours to form a casual friendship. And moving from casual friend to more of a significant friendship required about 80 to 100 hours. And moving from friend to a very close friend took between 160 to 200 hours. So, time spent together was the key predictor of friendship closeness. Hopefully, those of you who are married have figured that out as well, right? Um, More time spent at work or in class together actually predicted lower closeness, but more time spent out hanging out without an agenda predicted higher closeness. Do you hang out with people out of an agenda or out of a sincere love? There's some folks in our church who have no pretenses. You know when you're around them, they genuinely care. They are inviting, they are welcoming, they have your best interest in mind. Um, You know they're a friend, right? He also studied that the kind of talk friends engaged around was also important. Small talk about things like pets, sports, current events, TV, music, movies, predicted lower closeness over time. But he says, striving talk, which Hall defined as catching up by talking about events that have occurred since you last saw each other. Talking about what's up, what's happened to you during the day, your highs and lows. Serious conversation where you're involved in conversation. Uh, uh, playful talk. Talking in ways that express love and give attention and affection to greater closeness. That's just a secular study, Right? I wonder how much time the rich and the poor were spending together. I wonder if the wealthy were leveraging where they were allowed to be in their social status there for the good of their brother. I can think of some folks um, that I've known uh, who God has blessed with some financial uh, abilities and some financial blessings. Um, They would be the first to tell you, not because they're anything special but who use those things for other people. And what a blessing that is. Friends, we saw this actually in Sunday school this morning, that one of the building blocks of discipleship was the word, obedience to the word, and community, right? You cannot grow without other believers to the place that God wants you to grow. You can grow some, but you cannot grow as God intended you to grow without a church body, without each other. Paul says, if you're hungry, if, 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 if you want to have this big sumptuous meal that you're not going to share with anybody, do that at home. In verse 34. And don't come together for judgment in this way. And the rest will I set in order when I come. I know we may not have the same specific problems here of um, not sharing our food. <laughs> But this can be a danger in any church of cliques. Now, friends, there is a difference between the inner circles that Jesus had, right? Jesus had crowds. Jesus had 
70 closer followers. Jesus had the 12 who were closer, and then he had the three, right, who he was spending more time on. And the principle there was to feed the hungry sheep. The principle there was to pour grace in the mouths of those who wanted to, 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 to be fed with grace. There is a difference between that and saying, well, they're this way. I'm not going to associate with them. I'm going to draw lines that should not be drawn. And so God's words to us from 1 Corinthians are, first of all, be who you were made to be. The church, which is a together church, which is a welcoming church. And secondly, remember the point. Remember the whole point of the gospel is express the Lord's Supper there. It's to proclaim, to preach the gospel through our lives and how we relate to others. To be that community that is known for its sacrificial service to one another. That Jesus says in John, they'll know that you're my disciples. And then thirdly, to repent as the Holy Spirit reveals the ways in your heart. The walls you may put up. The barriers that you may not even be aware of. Sometimes we just operate this way and don't stop to think about it. Put your, put your feet in the shoes of, a, of another person. Repent by, thirdly here, examining your heart. Check your heart. Let's pray. Lord, this is just part of the uh, default of the human relationships without you. Um, That's where strife and envyings. Uh, It is where uh, slander uh, comes out of this soil here in 1 Corinthians 11 that was going on. Lord, help us to return to what our true identity in Jesus is. Help us this morning, Lord, to remember the whole point of being a church. That when we come together, it's for the good and not for the worse. It doesn't cause more harm, it creates healing. And Lord, reveal to each of us the areas where we need to grow in Christ's likeness. And as you have received us, so help us to receive one another. As you have welcomed us into your body, so help us to welcome one another. Help us not to just assume things. Help us to be proactive, not passive, in being the church that is welcoming. Thank you, Lord, for the fruit of the gospel. Thank you for the truth that We're not where we want to be, not where we need to be, but Lord, we are not what we once were. We praise you for your continuing, persevering grace. Thank you for your progressive uh, sanctification. You're making us holy in greater and greater ways. Help us to be faithful to you in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.